Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. We have a very interesting show tonight. Uh, We've got the editor of the New York Times Book Review. Uh, She oversees all of the book's coverage for the New York Times and hosts the weekly book review podcast, Pamela Paul. She has written a book entitled 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. Pamela, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you have kind of curated a list of aspects of life that were very common prior to the advent of of social media and kind of living our lives online. What made you decide that you wanted to do this? You know, a few things. Um, First, I've been reporting sort of on and off over the last 15 years about the intersection of technology and what I still think of as real life um, and kind of observing various changes when it comes to culture, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to how we think of ourselves in a kind of larger sense, and then just the little teeny ways in which we live our daily lives. So that's always been in the background for me um, as in my sort of reporting role, which I don't do full time anymore. Um, But when I do write uh, occasionally for the New York Times, I often write about things that touch on this. And I had done an op-ed for the Times, now called a guest essay, um, Mm -hmm. and it was called Um, let children get bored again. Um, But in my head, when I was working on it, it was sort of called the lost art of boredom. And I started to think, well, this is just one of those things that we no longer really have (laughs) in real life. Because anytime you're bored, you have access to something infinitely diverting and entertaining at your fingertips. And while we call it a phone, what it really is, is, you know, a portal to the internet. Exactly, exactly. And and when you discuss that in the book, you talk about how our creativity is lost and how so much inspiration was found in those moments of boredom that allow our mind to wander. And I mean, I think about anybody in any creative field knows, and like you said in the book, ideas come in the shower, ideas yes. come when you're driving. <laughs> yes, yes. Is, uh, Exactly, exactly. In fact, when I'm stuck, I mean, it's almost, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a pain. Um, but when I am stuck on something, I will get in the shower. And the reason it's a pain is that um, I also have a terrible memory, um, probably in part due to the internet, but also it's just me. And so I'll be in the shower and I will have all these thoughts come at me. And you can't write things down when you're in the shower. So that's why it's a, it's a little bit of a pain. Similarly, when you're driving, I will often, that's the one time where I, my brain sort of slows down enough and I don't have access to that, the internet. Um, although, of course, you can when you're driving. Right. That's another story. <laughs> Most definitely. And that that lack of boredom has has really cut the attention span down to that of basically a gnat, especially our children. And so you talk about how parenting has completely changed. I, I found that completely interesting because you think parenting would be the same regardless of the decade in which you're raising your children, but it really, really isn't. So tell no. me a little bit about your research on that. So honestly, I think any parent has observed this, right? You see it from the moment your child is born because they learn to swipe like, you know, it takes a baby two seconds to learn to swipe. Whereas, you know, back in the day when swiping first started, it would take someone over the age of 60, like a few, you know, good kind of minutes to like figure out like, wait a minute, you know, um, how does that work? Um, And for it to become natural, but it is 
absolutely second nature to the current generation. And, you know, I think all of us, and by that I mean everyone, I don't know, over the age of, say, 30. Um, well, and even children, everyone's heard their parents say like, you know, when I was little, we didn't have blah, blah, blah. And for me, um, my dad, you know, was a, a child of um, of the depression. And he would talk about playing stickball, for example, in Brooklyn. And that just felt like ancient times. That was like the old timey world. And it came in like a sepia tone, um, you know, color when I would think about it um, yeah. and try to imagine what that was like. And now I'm that old fogey. But it's things that like kind of stun me and that that my children um, don't realize was, you know, didn't exist when we were little. And, I, and I'll give you one kind of non-internet example. But um, recently we couldn't find um, one of the sets of keys in our house for the car that has, you know, the beeper opener, the, the remote opener. And sure. so there is like that one extra that you probably have from the dealer that is just a key. Um, and so I took that out of desperation. I went out to the car with my uh, teenage daughter and I went to open the car and she's like, wait a minute, you can open a car with a key? You oh, know, it just had never occurred to her, you know, because she, who opens a car with a key these days? Um, right. And I think that, you know, all of us have seen many ways in which being a kid has changed, being a teenager has changed, really at every stage of life has changed. And what I tried to do in this book is to kind of like take those moments and dig a little bit deeper because I think we notice it, but it sort of like quickly, you know, fades and you don't think about the implications. So I'll give just one example. And that is, it used to be in the olden times that you would have a phone in the kitchen. Um, and that might be the only phone in the house. Although generally most people had like a few other, you know, extensions of the landline scattered throughout the house or an apartment. And, um, and so if somebody wanted to come into your house, enter your house, you know, somehow be there among you. They either had to come in through the front door where you would see them, or they would have to call on the main line. And that meant, generally speaking, that someone else answered and or someone overheard at least part of the conversation. So you really had a sense of like, who is in this house among us, even if they're just a phone on the other end of a line. And now, of course, parents don't have access to any of that information. And for kids, you know, they're very happy <laughs> for the most part that their parents don't have any access to that information. You have no idea who your child is sort of with at any given moment, even if right. they're physically in your home. That's so true. That is. And it's you talk about how phone calls now are considered somewhat aggressive and 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 leaving voicemails are considered rude. And so it's 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 not just a not just the absence of that, but it's a swing in the complete opposite direction where everything kind of seems to have a need to be surreptitious. You know, it's interesting. I did a piece for the Times shortly after I joined here, um, which is 10 years ago in 2011, called The Death of the Phone Call. Actually, it was called Don't Call Me, I Won't Call You. Um, but in my mind, again, it was this thing that was gone. And it struck me because I had been working at at home, actually, um, for nine years before I came to the New York Times. And uh, I thought of the a newspaper, you know, as being like the Hudsucker proxy or, 
you know, um, any other, you know, great movie that I'd seen that takes place at a paper where there's, you know, constant ringing of phones and, and people shouting. And yeah. instead, it was total silence. And uh, it's total silence because no one would call anyone anymore. And when you think about it, and it was funny at the time when I was reporting this, you know, I called up uh, Miss Manners, Judith Martin, and she said, you know, the thank goodness someone has noticed this, It phone calls are incredibly rude. When you think about it, now that we have a way around it, which is to say, we text someone first, right? Mm -hmm. You text someone and you say, would now be an okay time to call, you know, or you set up a phone meeting, you know, we're all doing that in quarantine, either a Zoom or a phone. And you realize that's a much more actually kind of polite thing because a phone call, when a phone rings, it's basically saying, someone listen to me and talk to me right this minute. Like, I don't care care if you are in the middle of giving your baby a bath. I don't care if you're blow drying your hair. I don't care if you are naked. I don't care where and what you're doing. Pay attention to me. And right. it is kind of rude, you know, so it is, I have to say, some of what I tried to do in this book is say like, look, you know, it's not all terrible. Um, it certainly isn't all terrible. Right now, of course, we're reading a lot of bad news about the internet and the effects of social media and the effects of, um, you know, sort of big tech. But yeah. all of it isn't bad. You know, the internet does some good. And I have to say, it's kind of nice not to sort of be startled by a ringing phone. Now, when someone calls, I tend to think it's an emergency. Right. Absolutely. It's, it, it, it's something very important. You must you must answer the call right then, especially if it's a family member, because we you know, we text each other several times a day. What are we having for dinner? Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. If, if, if that phone rings, it does seem so instead of being uh, a, a welcome intrusion into the home, it has become an, an extremely unwelcome and, and yeah. etiquette, etiquette really in general seems to have have changed. I mean, as far as even as you write in the book, invitations. Yes. Yeah, I think it's kind of startling. I, I, I sort of noticed this really when, you know, paperless post and invites, evites started to go around. It was really different from when you would actually have to go to the stationery store and pick out your invitations and, you know, put them into, right, fill them out by hand put them in an envelope and maybe include an RSVP card or if not a phone number and an RSVP date. Well, people would, it would be unthinkable not to respond to that. Even if you right. said like, I can't go, or even if you were like, I'm so sorry, I actually don't know because there's a possibility, you know, my grandmother is on her deathbed and if she dies, I won't be there. You know, like you could, um, but you would never not get back to someone. Nowadays, when people send out evites or um, paperless posts, there's a kind of understanding that not everyone's going to reply. Not only are they not going to reply by the RSVP date, they're not going to reply at all because it's like email. No one replies to all their email anymore. A lot of email just kind of goes in and it's like a Twitter scroll. It just like goes down through your inbox until it sort of sinks away. And then you're like, okay, out of sight, out of mind. You know, we, we can't possibly respond to everything. But what's come with that is that people don't even respond to events that are momentous, whether it's a wedding or a child's birthday party or, you know, a bat mitzvah. No one replies. Everyone's noticing that. It's like that used to be a problem for party planners. Now it's a problem for real people. Absolutely. And that disconnect, everything, the image, it's all kind of filtered and contrived. And that that empathy 
for other human beings has has been diminished and just like that that one little step back from a printed invitation there's there's also a step back from from what you would say you would never say things to someone's face that you would say online and and th that that still amazes me the discord among our society right now and the things that people will say to others on the internet Yes, yes. I mean, gloves off. I should say one last point on the invitation that I don't think that it's all malicious. It's not like everyone is 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 viciously ignoring invitations. A sure. lot of the times those invitations go to spam, you know, and that's again happens a lot more often than something having gotten, you know, gotten lost by the post office in the mail. But anyway, but on the internet, yes, it is true. People are mean and it's because it's a lot easier to say something vicious about someone or even quote unquote to them when mm -hmm. it's across the chasm of the internet or when you're saying it about someone online, not realizing that like, oh, guess what? We can all see you on the internet. We can see you saying that thing that you're saying about me. Mm -hmm. And you know, when you are able to, to communicate with someone without having to actually encounter them, their voice, their face, the the fact that they are a human being in a human body with all of the you know limitations and vulnerabilities and you know difficulties and other things going on in their life you don't have to confront their humanity when you are just dealing with someone's Twitter handle or with you know someone else um, you know that that that's being mentioned casually in a snap and you think oh that snap's going to disappear and no one will ever see it so people are 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 really cruel online and I think. Again, this is an area where all this stuff comes naturally when you're young because that's the way it's established. And it's a really different thing, you know, in terms of, of, of bullying or just not being nice that happens on social media that probably wouldn't have happened with the same frequency, viciousness um, and confrontational nature in a school cafeteria in, say, the 80s or even the 90s. Most definitely. And, and and what you put out there lasts. I mean, the one line that really stood out to me is you said, the Internet comes for us all one day. And, and it's so true. What you put out there that you think might have disappeared, it's out there somewhere. And that is um, that's quite frightening to think that every moment of your life could be out there on the Internet. But it really could be. Yes. I mean, it always. Um, you know, it, it sort of terrifies and depresses me the schadenfreude that you see people express when they watch someone going down on the internet over something bad they said, quote unquote bad, um, and I have to put quotes around it because what is bad? Like, and look, we all make mistakes. We all have terrible moments. We all, you know, lose our temper or cry in public or do something silly or embarrassing. Absolutely. We all slip on a banana peel at some point, but what happens is that it's immortalized online. And again, it's amazing to me that other people will sort of pile on, pile on, pile on whenever you see someone going down mm -hmm. and not realizing like, hey, it's going to be your turn next. And I think the other thing that is really striking about that kind of behavior is that in a in a society in which supposedly everyone is trying to stand up as allies, there it's very rare to have someone stand up for a person who's under attack online. And the reason 
is understandable too, which is that you become kind of tainted by association. So if you stand up for someone who is being attacked, someone who is being criticized, um, rightly or wrongly, you will then become possibly the object the of that attack. You can become the next target. And so it's, um, you know, it's interesting to read about what that experience is like when that happens to people, because it's like everyone back off, everyone step away from the fire. You know, yeah. people just pull away when that happens. And again, it's unfortunate. It's also understandable. Oh, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And, and, and you did mention the wonderful things that the internet has brought as far as interpersonal communication in that it's so easy to meet people and to congregate with people and to never feel alone. All, you know, if you have a hobby, even the most specific kind of hobby in the world, you can find yes. someone else that's out there that has it. And I thought that was, I mean, it's really important, I think, that you highlighted that because there is so much that that seems negative about the online interaction. But by the same token, I mean, a lot of marriages have come from it. Yeah, it doesn't matter how specific your interest. If your thing is using acrylic yarn to croquet little sweaters for pinecone hedgehogs that you've put together from a tree in your backyard, you can find probably at least 10 other people who do that exact thing and exchange mm -hmm. chips with them or just like communicate about your, you know, your little passion. Um, but more seriously, if you have, for example, um, a loved one who has a rare illness or genetic disorder you can connect with other people and for all of us think about what the lockdown would have been like if there'd been no internet right I mean, everyone felt so isolated so alone so disconnected with the internet can you fathom what it would have been like if we hadn't had the internet i mean it was a lifeline and it, and not just in terms of loneliness and connection and friendship but exchanging health information getting public health information out there mm -hmm. um and you know being able to work remotely for those who do a kind of work that can be done purely on a computer all of those things were extraordinary and i think it would have been a really different pandemic had we not had the internet Oh, most definitely. And it, it, but because there, there was it, it's not like people could congregate in their neighborhood. We couldn't talk to someone in person who lived next door. So there wasn't even the option of having any person to person outside of your household contact. And so yes. that and, and it seems to really have changed the way we do business now. I mean, there are so many people who have said, if you know now that things are slowly returning to normal that if they aren't allowed to work from home at least 50% of the time they're they're ready to leave their job yeah yeah i mean you know it it it's it is pretty amazing of course again that's a kind of um privilege and good fortune that not everyone has because a lot of jobs demand that people be out there in in real life and right. you know you can kind of foresee lots of horrible economic uh, consequences if people don't return in some form um, but again there there is definitely an upside Yes, yes. Everywhere you go, fast food, restaurants, drugs, everyone's hiring. Everyone's hiring. I know. I know. It's amazing. It's amazing. It yeah. It's a good time to be looking for a job. It is. And I, 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 that's, it's been a long time since that could be so plainly stated. So you're, you, you lead the New York Times book review and you're also a writer. 
So how does your job kind of inform your writing? Has, has, has your writing changed at all since you've stepped into this role? Um, my writing has changed in that I have a lot less time for it because my job at the Times is so very full time, you right. know, and, and like any newsroom job just beyond full time. Um, so I really have to carve out specific writing times. But I would say it doesn't inform. I kind of to me, they're very separate buckets in my brain. And I write because I like to have that creative outlet to, to generate ideas or to be able to express ideas or things that I'm sort of observing out there in the world. And, and it and it doesn't really get informed by my day, day job so much as it does just by living in the world. You know, mm -hmm. if anything, my writing is a way for me to do things that I don't do um during my day job which i adore but it's very different it's very different when you are an editor and you're leading a team and um people on that team are doing the reporting you know they're doing the writing of stories or they are reading right. books and deciding which ones to be reviewed um when you're sort of overseeing that it's a lot of conversations and a lot of meetings um, but not necessarily generating kind of creative ideas or, or even just kind of writing thoughts down so my my book writing is my way into that well, excellent. And I'm glad that you wrote this book. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the walk down memory lane for all of the things that, that might be gone now, but, um, but are not forgotten. Thanks to your book. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, Pamela Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. I, um, I, I know that you are participating in the Miami Book Fair next month and it's the largest gathering of writers and readers in the the country so anyone who wants to can can get in touch through the miami book fair at miami book fair through the miami book fair website and where can people purchase your book they can get it anywhere you buy books your local independent bookstore your local library of course um, and anywhere you would buy it on the internet um, and i look forward to miami i think this is going to be my eighth year so i'm very excited That's and excited wonderful. that it's back in real life <laughs> it i know i know i mean it really is just just such a fantastic event every year i meet so many authors through the miami book fair that i find it such a blessing thank you so so much and i um i i hope that everyone out there grabs a hold of this book because my stars it is crazy how much life has changed in a, a mere 10 or 15 years it's amazing <laughs> thank you so All much right. i appreciate well, thank it thank you so much for authors on the air global radio network this is shannon fisher see you next time